So it's been a while since we've talked about it on the show, and I think it's the right amount of time that uh, we needed to come back and revisit it again. Production design. The uh, the term itself, it just seems so impassionate. Production design. It sounds like we're, you know, putting together designs of airplanes or like uh, architects, you know, and the, the, the reality of that job is that it is very much a technical job, but it is an incredibly passionate job that is hyper-focused on character, hyper-focused on emotion, hyper-focused on storytelling. Um, and I love that about it. And, and I don't think production design gets enough credit. It's not put in the limelight the same way that the cinematographer is. And maybe that's just because of the name. The name cinematographer sounds like magician, right? It just runs off your tongue differently. And production design sounds like uh, a warehouse that is stamping out vehicles, right? But production design and the production design team and the art design team is one of my favorite, favorite aspects of filmmaking because it is the most magical. It is one of the places, like if you can walk into your production designer's office and they've been doing prep for weeks and they've worked with uh, concept artists and they put together mood boards, you just walk into that space and you start to see your film. And what's interesting is that you start to see your film through someone else's eyes. You start to see your film through all these other amazing artists' eyes. And that starts to change the way you perceived your movie. That starts to influence the way you tackle a scene, you tackle themes. You start to notice little details that's like, weird, why did you guys choose? Oh, right, because that was in the script and I didn't see that before. That's fascinating. I love that aspect. And then fast forward to when you're on set, you show up and you're nervous, right? Because your team has been working for weeks and uh, they're trying to stay ahead of the shooting schedule. And you're like, I don't know, what's the set gonna look like? You know what I mean? And you poke in every once in a while. You, you, you make sure you take some time and you, you look in there. But it usually just looks like the empty shell of a house or a development where it's, you know, this is where the walls are going to be. This is where this is going to be. Um, and unless you've spent time in the art department, which I highly suggest you do. If you're a young listener on the show, and I know there's a ton of you that write to me consistently, how do I get into this business? What do you think is the best way in for a director? I think you should spend some time. If you are going to go do the PA route, let's say that you've moved to Los Angeles to PA or you're in New York to PA, or even if you're in one of your small towns that has a film community. Boston's got a big film community. Atlanta's got a massive film community. Um, and you're going to PA, right? That's the best way in. I've said this before on the show. The first thing that you need to do well, it isn't about your experience. It's not about what school you went to. It's about being dependable. It's about being that person that they can count on. Can you drive a van? Can you safely drive a van? Do you know how to go pick up a van and check it out and go through the rental department? Can you show up on time? Are you someone that is sitting in the background looking at your phone and waiting for someone to call you? Or are you someone that is there and ready to go? These are the skills that a PA needs in any department. Someone that is looking around, someone that has the curiosity to see what is needed next. 
to see how the pieces all fit together. I think that's one of the advantages of becoming a PA, is that you have that moment where you can have the helicopter point of view and look around and see how all these pieces start to fit together. Now, if you're doing that, if you're jumping from PA department to PA department, go spend some time in the magical world of art, the art department, and you'll see how sets come together. It's amazing to watch. If it's being constructed from scratch, the construction crew comes in, you start to smell wood shavings and wood pieces, and maybe there's like arc welders that are running and you have like that sulfur in the air, you have all of that construction vibe in the air, which for me goes back to my roots of being on construction sets and house painting and being in mechanic shops. I love that. I love that. The sound of a drop tool, like a, a wrench bouncing off a cement floor, you know? The sound of, a, of an air compressor kicking on and the nail gun running in the background. All those elements are home to me. All those elements feel safe to me. And they're exciting. There's a sense of, I, I'm gonna say it, there's a sense of masculinity in there. There's a sense of like, excitement and pure power that comes with building things with your hands. And it's not just men doing it, women do it, everybody does it. And oh, there's something so great about seeing an art department construct things, right? So you walk in and you see the skeletal of this set. Then in comes the paint team. In comes the aging process. Suddenly there's color. Suddenly there's time that is being like literally painted on with a sponge. Time, years of backstory is being applied. And then the art, then the uh, set uh, deck team comes in. And the set decorators and the prop masters, and they start to bring in these truckloads of collections, things that they've gone out and hunted and, sc and scoured for, looked through the internet, gone to flea markets, found all these different pieces and elements. And that, that, that space that felt empty before is now flourished with detail. It's amazing to look at and to watch. There's a reason why a bunch of you spend hundreds of dollars a year for passes to go to Disneyland and to walk through these sets. I don't know, man. I've been lucky enough to, to have my own Disneyland's created. <laughs> so maybe it's, maybe it's arrogant of me to say it this way, but... I just don't feel the same way when I go uh, step on like the Star Wars uh, theme park ride, you know? Uh, if you want to have a real crazy adventure, put together your own film, work with an amazing art department and watch the theme park ride that they build for you. This world that is built. This is a very romantic episode. So strap yourselves in and get ready. And I wanted to get in deep with somebody who has been working on films that I respect, that I appreciate, that I love. Movies that are loaded with detail, loaded with backstory visually. Uh, let's talk about a couple films. How about Logan? Right? Prob arguably the best in the X-Men Fox uh, series. And such an interesting film because the prior Wolverine movies were shaky at best. The complete departure the jump right out of any sort of like thematic storyline into this post-apocalyptic world with an aging Logan, with an aging Wolverine and an aging uh, Xavier, Professor X. Um, and think about the sets in that movie. Uh, the fallen water tower set where Xavier lives uh, and how much it 
It pays like a visual homage to uh, Cerebro from the prior films uh, with the light leaking through the cracks in the water tower. It just, it was super cool. I remember seeing that in the theater going, clever. That's clever that you guys did that. That's really fucking rad. And this sort of like dusty desert landscape and the vehicle design and the futuristic tones of that film. Very complicated movie to do. Beautiful to look at. Let's talk about another movie that I really enjoyed. Ford, for, I'm sorry, Ford versus Ferrari. Great film, highly energetic. It felt like they were doing everything practically. Uh, race car drivers in these like on land, unsafe to drive rocket ships that are shaking and rattling and you can hear all of the rivets on the vehicles and the sheet metal moving. Beautiful film but a period film nonetheless. And you guys know, if you've seen my film 12KM, if you've seen the movies that I work on, I do a lot of very immersive production design films, a lot of period films. And doing a movie that took place in Russia in the 1980s and shooting that in modern times outside the city of Boston presented quite a few challenges that I couldn't have pulled off without my amazing art team. My great friend Suja, saved my ass on that movie. So if you're listening, Suja, thank you again, as always, for saving my ass with your props. So um, I'm excited. Great production designer, Francois Adouille is on the show. And like I said, he's done movies like Ford vs. Ferrari, Logan. Uh, he's won a production awards, production designer awards for all those. He actually did the original Wolverine movie. Uh, and he most recently, his most recent work, his beautifully textured work, was on Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, and if you haven't seen that movie yet, I know it's now on demand. So if you were too afraid to go to the theaters, um, which I get it, but you have to go see it in the theater if it's still there. Um, but uh, the, the texture, the level of detail, the backstory, because there was a huge gap between Ghostbusters 2, which was early 90s, and the current Ghostbusters, and what happened with our characters, what happened with a very specific character when you watch that movie. And how much, when you watch that movie, how much of his backstory was told to you by the props, by the sets, and by the production design? I would wager to say most of it was. So it is a great film. Francois is on the show today. Uh, first time I've chatted with him, really cool guy. We get along really well. <laughs> we get along really well. Uh, we start to go down a very romantic path together on the industry and on the business. So if in the past you're like, Mike, you get very cynical on the show, here comes the fucking unicorns and rainbows, guys. <laughs> this, is, this is the most romantic episode yet. Uh, so I'm excited for it. Strap yourselves in. And before we get to it, I want to thank everybody that follows me on Instagram at Mike Petchy on Instagram and follows the podcast on Instagram. That's in love with the process. P-O-D on Instagram. Uh, we have been doing contests. We are uh, introducing you to our new sponsors on there. Uh, I have been posting a lot of my process for storyboarding on there and my figurines that I'm using. I continuously get questions about the figurines from you guys. Dig a little deeper into the Instagram account. I post it all there. I actually talk about it on, on, prior, on prior episodes of this show. I love you like very passive uh, visitors 
I mean, I love everybody that comes by and says stuff, but the passive ones that are just, they, they don't go past five posts. The, the answers to your questions are there. Just look for them. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, man. Let's see what else is going on. Uh, I'm going to catch you up with some stuff at the end of the show, let you know what's happening. A bunch of great episodes in the can. I've got a bunch of really great guests on the way. So uh, we're, we release this show for all you newcomers every Tuesday. Uh, and sometimes I'll give you a bonus show once a week. Be sure to tell all your friends. Our numbers are higher. Uh, and uh, with the higher numbers, uh, we get better guests. I can't be specific about it, but I am booking an actor on the show uh, later this week, I think I'm recording him, in the nightmare that I had to go through with the PR folks. Because it's always like, how many people listen to the show? Like, what are the numbers? And how does this work? It's great. The more episodes you listen to, the more friends that you get to listen to the show, the bigger and the better the guests are going to be, uh, the better conversations that you'll be able to join in on. Um, so please share the show around and leave reviews on Apple Podcast. That's the best place to leave a review for the show. Uh, just scroll down. Uh, I think you get past like 10 episodes and then there's the review thing that shows up. Uh, I don't care if you leave me a one star, man. Just leave me anything. It's fine. And uh, if you're listening to the show on Spotify, I think you can now star the show. Uh, who knows what the fuck that does. But at least you could do it, right? All right, without further ado, let's not delay it. Strap yourselves in, throw on those noise-canceling headphones, turn them way up, get ready to get lost in the romance that is production design on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Francois, thanks for being on the show, man. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm excited, dude. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work. I uh, obviously saw um, the Ghostbuster stuff that you were doing, and I think I followed you on Instagram, so I saw a bunch of your posts, and 
as I dug deeper into your post, I was like, Ford versus Ferrari, rad. And then like Logan, <laughs> fuck yeah. So um, yeah, well, thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been, try to shake it up with different uh, movies. You know, you try to do something as different as possible each time, right? Yes, a hundred percent agree. And I have I think I'm a bit more fortunate than most folks that listen to the show because I, I have done films. I, I have worked closely with production designers, so I have such a deep love and respect for the amount of time, A, and then B, just the detail that goes into production design that oftentimes isn't even captured on camera, just the levels of texture and the amount of work mm -hmm. that goes into it. Um, and my hope with today's episode is that you and I just sort of talk about it a bit and maybe we blow some people's minds because I think <laughs> a lot of the younger folks that are listening to the show, a lot of students are never like, hey, production design. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, a lot of, yeah, you're right. And I mean, production design doesn't get a lot of the spotlight as some of the other spashier crafts, I guess, you know, like cinematography and visual effects. Sure. But we're right in there in the very early days of, of productions. And, um, and I think that, um, I think that with Instagram and social media things, more attention is being paid to the art of production design in a nice way mm -hmm. over the years. At least that's what I've seen. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say this too. anybody listening, um, head on over uh, to Francois's website because you do a really great job with case studies on there. I think that the breakdown on that website is phenomenal for it. So, like, if oh, thank you very much. Yeah, man. Yeah, um, Audrey.com. <laughs> and I, I do, uh, I, I, I do something a little bit different with my website. I don't really, I make it like a classic portfolio uh, website that everybody has. It's more of an educational sort of case study. Um, destination. <laughs> and, uh, there are a lot of st students of production design and fans of production design who want to learn more about the process. And, uh, for the more substantial projects, I try to do these breakdowns that, 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 that paint a picture of what, what was involved with these movies and also these commercials and music videos that I work on in between big movies. Well, hell yeah, man. I can't wait to jump into it, but let's just do a little history. Let's, let's, uh, catch folks up. How did you, so did you know that you wanted to be a production designer or did you go to art school? Like how did it start for you? What was the process? No, uh, listen, I, uh, I was just uh, a movie nerd, like uh, a lot of people listening <laughs> in, in school. And I also love to draw. My, my mother's an artist mm -hmm. and I, um, I didn't know, I came, I grew up in a small town. I didn't know how I was going to, you know, uh, work in movies. I knew I, I, it seemed like an impossible dream. And, um, I got lucky, uh, and I just got in at the very, well, not really lucky, but I, 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 I worked hard to build a portfolio and I got in, I dropped out of school to start working on movies at the very bottom rung of the ladder. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh, my first movie was a movie, it was Batman forever in, I think it was 1994 mm -hmm. that we started that, that, that movie started and I worked in visual effects and then immediately decided I had to be in the art department. That was the best, most fun place to be. And, um, well, hold on. I, why, why was it the most fun place to be? What is it that really pulled you into well, it? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great follow-up. I mean, I, it's just where all of these ideas that are just written out or sometimes not even written out on the page are birthed. And it's the art department full of artists where you've got, uh, 
you've just got just an incredible uh, reservoir of talent in, in these movie art departments of illustrators and model makers and set designers with architectural backgrounds and um, graphic designers and all uh, cross pollinating. And mm. it's, there's this, this like buzzing energy in a movie art department. It's, and it's the, it's really like one of the only places uh, physically where all these people are assembled and collaborating uh, sort of shoulder to shoulder. I mean, that, that's at least the classical experience that I had. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, visual effects, like visual effects is also a very visual sort of buzzy department, but, but those, the, the work a lot of times is farmed out to companies working all around the world, you know? So you don't right. really, you know, the visual effects department is uh, a handful of people on their, uh, their MacBook pros. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there's an excitement when you walk into a, a, a movie art department that w- where you walk around and you, and you see uh, incredible artwork on the walls, you know, yeah. poster size artwork of the walls. And it's, the, it's the first time that you can get the sense of what a movie is going to be, uh, what it's going to feel like. And yeah. that's why a lot of dire- directors, when they, they hire an actor, uh, the first stop on the tour to build enthusiasm for the movie <laughs> is to take them to the art department. And that's, that's yeah. even Hitchcock would do that. You know, he would take, take the stars into the art department and, and, and then it's like, ah, you know, you get this like, ah, moment of like, wow, this is, this is the movie we're making. Right. <laughs> that's what we ultimately, that's what we're trying to do as product designers is, is get everybody to feel and, and understand what it's going to, what the movie is going to not only specifically look like, but what it's going to feel like. Right. Yeah, no, I do totally feel that. Like I'm in the process right now of prepping a film and it's, it's fascinating as you read a script as a director, you sort of go through the script and you try to visualize it for the first time. And you, and you, you, you this world is painted in your mind. Right. And oftentimes mm-hmm. with me, it's a very loose thing. It's like a scene or a set piece or something that I see. And I'm like, Oh, this would be rad if it looked like this and it felt like this and it had that. Um, and then the most difficult process, the most difficult process with, with the filmmaking is really just sort of trying to verbalize what it is mm. that's been painted in your mind. And I know mm. how to sketch, so I do a little bit of sketching now and then, but I love, love, love when I get to work with a production designer and art department right away because mm. then in my mind, it's like, hey, read the script and what what is it that, what is it? the obsessive image that comes out in your mind and what is it that you mm. need to sketch and what is it that you need to draw? Cause it definitely changes everything. And then suddenly mm. the nerves start to drop a little bit with the production company, the nerves start to drop a little yeah. bit with the people around you and they go, Oh, you know what you're talking about? I go, well, not really, but we're figuring that out. Well, I think you just landed on something that's, that's really uh, um, right at the core of, of what we do as visual storytellers mm-hmm. the, 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 you just, you just said it really well. It's hard to, to, to explain or, or describe what it is. And that's because you can't, sometimes you can't describe or explain or, or write what it is. You have to, you know it when you see it. And mm-hmm. in the very early days of working on a movie, um, so you're fishing for those images that you may find in research or you may find in location scouting, or you might find in other movies, mm-hmm. and you put, you find those like visual connections that that spark that you, something in the director, and you put them up on the wall, 
And, and the very like blurry, blurry image of what the movie is, it starts to coalesce as these touchstones, these visual touchstones are, are discovered at, at, in a collaborative process. And so yeah. you build upon that by, by bringing on concept illustrators and set designers and model makers to expand those visuals that, that otherwise you couldn't describe using words. Yeah, I mean, it's always really difficult, especially as a director, if I'm pitching on things. And when you go in to pitch on a, a script that isn't yours, if you go uh, put an idea together, you oftentimes have to put together a lookbook or some sort of mood board or put something together. And it mm. always drives me insane, whether it's for movies or music videos, where I'm like, all right, so what I want to shoot doesn't exist. So I'm going to look for <laughs> yeah. some sort of imagery that plays with it. But the danger that I find that when I'm putting together early mood boards is that uh, the artist may gravitate towards some random thing in this photograph that I grabbed for like the atmosphere. I'm like, oh, the background's really cool in this. I'm like, yeah, mm. but the, the outfit's cool. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so it's, it's always great yeah. when you get to work with uh, concept artists, because at that point you feel like you're presenting something that is a bit more focused, but also something that's completely original and it's not, mm. uh, cross pollinating from, from another project that exists. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, lookbooks are, uh, are, can be extremely helpful as a, as a jumping off point. Uh, and they bec they're becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah. I'm finding because anybody can hop on the internet and find anything, you know, anybody can do a lookbook sort of thing. But, uh, and it's, it's very provocative when you see, uh, a, a collection of images together, it does paint a picture, you know, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, when you're handed that as a production designer, it's sort of like getting a temp track. If, yeah. you're a, yeah. if you're a composer, yeah. you know, <laughs> sometimes you want to kind of like, okay, forget everything you saw in the lookbook or the, before I started, forget everything. Let's try to <laughs> open our minds up to, to what it, what else it could be. Yeah, no, um, completely, man. And you bring up a great point because I've had multiple composers on the show and I've talked with composers before. I hate doing temp tracks, especially in the edit, because it's really stinting. Sometimes it can stint creativity where either... I fall in love with the pacing for something or like the producer mm. falls in love with it. The client falls in love with it. I hate that. I'd rather just come clean. It's, it's just a very difficult thing to do currently in uh, the current business because everybody can do searches and everybody's so used to getting lookbooks and everybody's used to getting these packages. It's, mm. it's weird, man. It's a very strange time period for, for pitching right now. And, and mm. I think you're seeing the results of that when you watch a lot of music videos, or if you watch a lot of movies, that feel like they're just ripping off another film. And you're like, wow, these guys obviously never got past the lookbook stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I get, yeah. And I guess the goal is, is to be the one, the, the one who's being copied and not the one who's copied. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so. Um, but let's change the gears a little bit here and let's talk about, um, so you started as an illustrator. So you started drawing. Where did that come from? Where did that well, start? Yeah. So just to finish that thought, I, my mother, uh, is a, is an artist and a, and a, and a painter and art school teacher. And I was always, I just had the bug growing up. Um, uh -huh. um, also I was really into graphic design. So, and, and, and there was this convergence where, um, where technology was sort of catching up at the same time. And so I was, um, I was in my first interview on, for uh, like a, a union job on on Men in Black with Bo Welch, I I, uh, I brought in my computer and they had never Bo had never um, uh, 
hired a digital illustrator or graphic designer before who's purely 100% of the computer. Hmm. And in fact, I had like no way of like really presenting my work because this was back in, this was in like 1995. Uh And so I ended up hauling my computer into the interview and plugging it in and showing (laughs) stuff on my screen. Um, Because it was like, you know, they were just, the printers were just getting good enough to do the kind of the photo quality prints and there were no digital uh, cameras yet even. So you had to kind of take photos and scan them. But so um, I, I, I sort of, you know, I was one of the few folks who brought Photoshop into the art department and um, cool. And um, it gave like designers the, uh, the ability to do, do stuff very quickly that, that traditionally had taken a long time. Um, when I started on, on men in black, uh, there was a sort of a, a, a standardized way of conceptualizing movies that was taught as a class at like art center in Pasadena and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and illustrators would basically draw by pencil and then they would photocopy the, the ink, the, they do ink over that to photocopy it. And then they would do uh, markers on top of like an 11 by 17 drawing. And that would be the look. That's the look that, that, you would, you would get. And so there was, nobody was on the computer. So hey. I, 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 um, I ended up sort of using that skill, uh, and, and, and working on a couple bunch of movies that where it was really, really useful. Like minority report where I would take like all the location photos and do quick, um, mashups like photo bashing of what they, these locations could look like. Um, cool. Steven Very Spielberg, cool didn't want to look at any location photos because he was like, well, what am I looking at? I don't, this, I, what, what could it be in my new report? So instead of showing location photos, the production designer, Alex McDowell would show quick mashups of like, well, this is just a quick idea of what this parking structure could look like or what mm-hmm. this train station could look like or what, you know? And so I literally did dozens and dozens of photo bashing, uh, photo bash sketches on that. Oh, and then man. over the years, you know, over the years, it was just um, working my way up um, in the art department. I working as an assistant art director, then an art director, and then finally an assistant art director. It's just a natural evolution of 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 getting more experience and and getting more responsibility, and um, and then you know finally getting some opportunities or an opportunity to become a production designer. Very cool, man. And. I have such a love for Photoshop. I remember when I first learned Photoshop, which is, God, man, like late 90s, whenever that, Mm -hmm. like, I think it was like version three, (laughs) whatever it was. Uh, And then you start playing with it and it's, it's learning magic. And every time I sit down, even now, if I sit down daily in front of that program, it's like, there's a hundred different ways of doing any given task. And you're always stumbling across something new and you're like, man, this program is just such an open-ended magical world. Um, and it's fascinating to me. Well, it really is. I mean, Photoshop is like the, uh, sort of like the OG, you know, like killer app for designers. And, but now it's blown up where there's, it's only a a small tool, uh, at the disposal of, 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 of artists who are more and more conversant at 3d and using 3d as part of their design process. And, um, that that's where I think things have become really, really exciting is that I've, I've been able to see this sort of like the, the transition from, from fairly simple, uh, t- tools and applications to incredibly robust, like super powerful 
tool mm. sets that normally only like big visual effects houses could do. You know, we can, I, I can, I have artists who are able, who work completely in 3D, who are, who generate fully uh, photo real uh, concepts uh, that are, that, that, you know, with assets that fold right into the visual effects process, you know, so you're, 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 and this is just in the last few years where you're kind of designing the final shots, you know, you have the ability to design wow. Wow. and hand over, uh, set extensions and, and fully digital sets that, that, that fold right into the post-production process where one, you know, on a Thursday, we're getting designs that approved and a fr- on a Friday they're turning them over to visual effects. And on a Monday they're working on the final comps, you know? Wow. Um, wow. it's, it's a pretty cool time. Yeah, man. That's pretty amazing. I'm jumping around pretty fast cause I've had like three coffees this morning already. <laughs> so I'm kind of fully caffeinated. <laughs> I love it, dude. I love it. I love jumping all over the place. Um, so let's talk about, let's jump, like, uh, let's, let's talk about uh, a film like Ford versus Ferrari, right? So mm-hmm. you, it's a period piece. Uh, it's it must've been insanely difficult because it's a, it's a racing period piece. So at that point, like how big are the sets, how big are the areas that you have to production design? Um, and then mm-hmm. how, how did it start for you? You get the script, you read the script and did you, uh, was it a daunting thing when you read it or like, how did it first come to you? You know, um, well, I, I, I was, uh, I was already working with the director, uh, James Mangold on another project that, that we were all having a hard time getting going. And then literally like I, uh, we jumped right onto uh, right across onto this other project that I had read, but I thought it was going to be the movie that was going to be after the movie that we were working on. <laughs> and all, and then on like overnight, it became the actual project that we were going to be working on next. And, um, it was, what was interesting about that project was that I had heard that it had been, uh, other directors had tried to make it, make it and failed because of the challenges of, of, um, of expensive race cars and, yeah. uh, and, and just, it was, it was one of those daunting, like quote unquote, impossible movie scripts that everyone loved, but couldn't crack. Um, but, um, you know, Jim, who I had worked on two other movies with is, is he's, a he's just an incredible filmmaker and also a bit of a juggernaut. Like he, 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 he's, he's a writer and, uh, and he knows that, that what we have to, we don't have to build everything or do everything. We have to do what matters for the story. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. And, and there was a, uh, there was a bit of a, you know, there was, I mean, I just remember it being a blur uh, quite honest in, 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 in prep <laughs> and not really, you know, you don't, you don't have to, I, I don't worry too much about, well, how are we going to do this? Because I know we'll figure it out. You know, there's a trust in, the collaboration that we'll figure out. And in the beginning, you want to, you want to throw every, everything up on the, on the wall and find those touchstones and build the enthusiasm so that, you know, that, 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 that folks who walk through the art department get the tingles. Like I talked about before in my first experiences, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the, those are, that's what you're really worried about early on is what is the movie? What does it feel like? How, why is this exciting? Um, what are those images that are really, that get everybody, um, motivated and, um, but 
Jim wanted to make that film uh, to be a film that had that felt real, that felt grounded, that felt like there were real cars going at speed and not not computer generated cars yeah. all the time. Yeah, I think there are like two shots in the movie with CGA cars. <laughs> there's there's mostly real cars going at speed on real tracks. So it was a yeah, you're right. It was an incredibly ambitious <laughs> sort of. Uh, uh, job for sure. But it, it really shines through. I love that film for that reason, because it does feel practical. It almost feels like it is a film from the seventies. It's, it feels very mm. period, which I, which I, which I love. And the, you know, my, my early roots were uh, working on cars as a kid and an airplane mechanic for a little while. So like the, the mechanics of things and how vehicles feel when they're moving and how they shake and the, the noises that they make, all that stuff mm. uh, makes the driving feel more dangerous, especially in older vehicles like that. So, um, yeah, I thought it worked out really well. I thought you guys did a killer job on that film. Oh, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of that movie. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's also one of those movies that only come around once in a blue moon, especially now in <laughs> yeah. just, uh, you know, I mean, it's an original movie that's not based on existing IP, right? So yeah. it's it's very risky in, in terms of of uh, like a uh, like a money making prospect. You're not those those sorts of movies are just are, are white elephants, or they're they're just hard. They just are very very rare, and uh, yeah. And so we just basically didn't want to fuck it up, you know. <laughs> That's crazy, man. That's crazy. And then, so for the, when you were putting together that initial, that initial board, that initial room, were you just digging through like old catalogs of images from that time period? You're just looking for anything, right? At that point, like, how does it start? It starts with, it's, well, on a movie like that, it starts with the characters and it starts with the history. Yeah. Uh, and, and um, I'm a big believer in, in defining backstory um, through production design, mm. you know, you can only, when you read a movie script, you are, it's, it's written in the present as what's happening right now or, or, or in the present time of the film. You don't have the space, the page space to write a book report on, on the characters, <laughs> right? Or nor yeah. should you, Yeah, right. but there are certain things that you can do when you're designing the spaces to tell a story of the characters that a screenplay cannot do. Yeah. And so what, what the first job in terms of what the ter first job for me in terms of, of, of designing Ford versus Ferrari was to become an expert, um, in those, the, those two characters, um, Carol Shelby and Ken miles. So I became an expert and did tons of research and we did, you know, character bios and, and, um, and, 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 learn their histories and, and, and the sec and, and the histories of the secondary characters and, and what was going on at the Ford company at the time and what was going on at the Ferrari company at the time. And then the, the effort became, um, about trying to infuse the set design and the production design with th those details, as you said, at the head of this interview, mm -hmm. the details that you're always impressed with that go into uh, designing these spaces that, that where you, you look at it and it's like, you completely believe that that is, you know, the, the, the Shelby factory at LAX in 1964, you completely believe yeah. that, that you've walked into the river Rouge plant, 
where you know the assembly lines are have just been stopped and and Henry IV II is giving his speech in front of all of his workers. You know, I mean, that that's what you're ultimately trying to do is you're trying to make believe. You're trying to make everyone believe that this is actually real. Yeah, well, and that makes a lot of sense. And it was because I was going to bring up the point that it, it must have been helpful that uh, these two characters existed and that you could go back and, and do a bunch of research on them. But then just thinking about all the different films that you've done recently, like uh, even with Logan, like the history, the rich history that is the the backstory of all, both those characters, like Xavier mm-hmm. and Logan, you can dig through. And even with the new Ghostbusters film, at that point, you guys were just, you must have been going back and doing as much detailed research through the first two films mm. as possible um, because it registers, especially in spoilers for anybody listening to it. If you haven't seen Ghostbusters, fast forward. But if you have, okay. <laughs> so then, um, yeah. Because with, you know, the intro of the Ghostbusters film, which I think is beautiful, and the way that uh, you guys set up Egon and, and all the details in like his little workspace, his hidden workspace that he had, it's just completely apparent that the... Uh, love and texture in the research was there because you were telling stories and referencing old comments, whether it's the fungus and the mushrooms. and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's super cool, man. Really fucking well done and very, very textured, that film. Well, that was an, a very uh, um, challenging but also super fun uh, job assignment to tell a backstory to a character that's not there and we haven't seen in a long time. And yeah. so what, well, what happened to this guy? And it's a bit of a, you know, in, in the beginning of the movie, it's a mystery. You have this mystery as to, oh, how did he end up here in, uh, in Oklahoma? And, uh, and, and I think that's what makes, generally that's what makes movies interesting is when you, there, there is a, there's this sort of mystery box that's being opened about, characters where you're through watching you're putting the pieces together the pieces of the puzzle together as to what what happened how did they end up in this particular time and space and so uh with egon you know there was the the conversation became well when did he leave new york city and what did he take with him and and how can we show that visually in his house and his lab and Mm -hmm. um uh the you know the amazing septic team totally you know, became very passionate about freeze framing, you know, the 84 film and the, the, the sequel and, and finding <laughs> uh, pieces and elements that we could purchase again. And uh, uh, Paul Healy, uh, one of the set, set decorators in Calgary, he ended up creating his own fake accounts online at like eBay on eBay and other, uh, other places because he didn't want anyone to know who he was or what he was shopping for. And he would find <laughs> these, these like uh, these pieces of equipment, you know, that were obviously associated with Ghostbusters and uh, would ship them to Calgary and put them in the set. You know, That's so cool. You, That's cool. you could, yeah, you can find a lot of the original, you can find the original, all the original equipment from the original, from the film when they're in Columbia university, for example. And uh, it all ended up in his lab under, under the trap field.
All right, it is time to do our sponsor reads. Uh, and without these folks, the show wouldn't be possible. So stick around, bunch of really cool stuff that I wanna talk to you guys about. Uh, first up, let is ta let's talk about our new sponsor over at Vidafair. That is V-I-D-A-F-A-I-R.com. If you're a filmmaker like myself, maybe you're someone that is uh, creating short films, you're creating web series, and you wanna get them out to an audience and you wanna monetize them. It's completely understandable. Who do you use? What are your options? There's a bunch of different companies out there uh, that are charging you per click, that are charging you based upon the amount that you charge your uh, viewers. Uh, what I like about Vidafair is that they don't do that. They charge you a, a hosting fee, an initial hosting fee, um, which is like under six bucks to post your content. And then you can put whatever price you want on the pay per click. Um, and they won't charge you more for it. That is the biggest benefit of these guys. Head on over to vidafair.com uh, and check them out. Um, let me see if I can read some stuff off here. Uh, how much money can you make? Use your earnings calculator to see for yourself. Uh, go to the about menu items on our homepage and to enter the file size, your 24 hour rental price and the number of views you might expect in the next 12 months. Uh, minimum allowable rental prices will are a product of file size. I don't know what that means. I, don't, I, I read that completely wrong. Um, but yeah, you can go over here and check and see how much money you can potentially make. Um, you can, they give you advice on how to set your prices. Um, it's really great. And it's also a great place to check out other films and documentaries. So um, there's a bunch of like, I'm just clicking on their films page. There's a movie called The Mechanic, which looks interesting. Big Buck Bunny looks cool. Um, head on over to Vidafair and check it out. I think they're going to try to build a community of filmmakers on there as well. So it's a great place, new sponsor. Very excited to have them on the show. Go check them out today. Uh, on our other great, exciting sponsor for the show, uh, a sponsor that when you sign up for it will change the way your work is seen immediately. So this is very important. For your filmmakers, before you can post your movies on Vidafair, you have to make them exciting. You have to make them visually appealing, but you also have to make them sound like they're expensive. Sound, you wanna make sure that that music that you choose is triggering all those emotional cues. That is filling in the blanks, the stuff that happens in between the shots. That emotional thread line that is pulling the audience into your film. And one of the worst things you can do is go get stock music. And for so many of our projects, whether you're doing commercials or whether you're doing corporate videos, the clients always think about music last. It is one of the smallest light items on your budget. It drives me crazy when I talk to a client who is so hyper-focused on like, what camera are you shooting this on? How's it gonna look? Is this 4K? And then they are like, here, here's like $200 for the music. All of that stuff that you wanted before is completely negated by shitty sound. Think about it. You can watch a movie that looks like crap and excuse it as style. You cannot watch a movie that sounds like shit. No one will wanna watch it, they'll shut it off immediately. So what I highly suggest you do right now, many of you can't afford, don't know composers, don't have relationships with composers. It would be nice to have original music created for everything, but it's not realistic, whether you're talking about your clients or whether you're talking about your own personal work. I found this company called Jambox. Go to jambox.io. They blew my mind. 
I have worked with a bunch of different stock websites. I've had clients send me stock websites. My eyes want to roll their way out of my head when I listen to this stuff. I went to Jambox and I felt like I went to a labels website. Suddenly the music felt bigger. Suddenly the music felt more emotionally consistent, more emotionally powerful. The production on the music was interesting. Hell, I wanted to license opera music and I could get real opera music with a real orchestra performing that opera music for such a low price, for such an affordable price. The thing that I love about Jambox is that these guys have been providing music to like Michael Bay's movie commercials for years, to huge productions, but they also understand the power of supporting independent filmmakers. They understand the power of supporting new talent. They also understand how the game works and where the views come from and how if you do a really great web series, that will lead to telling great stories in a larger platform at some point in time. So these guys want to make relationships with everybody. Very smart of them. What do I mean by this? You can sign up for different subscription uh, plans with these guys today, affordably today, uh, and oftentimes cheaper than it costs you to, to subscribe to fucking Netflix, okay? And get access to amazing content. And maybe you're not doing a project right now where you need music. Are you going to be writing treatments for projects? Are you gonna be writing ideas for projects? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to say to a client, I would like this to have a giant operatic score. And the client going, well, we don't really have the money for that, but you have already done the research by going to jambox.io and going through the catalog and saying, I have access to it. And it's only gonna cost us for that commercial. Uh, it's only gonna cost me $19.99 a month to be a part of this plan, which will cover that. 19 bucks a month covering your commercial stuff. I have that unlimited commercial account and it works for client work, including digital ads, weddings, corporate, and nonprofit. Uh, $19.99 a month will cover everything from the creator plan, which we'll talk about in a second. It gives you full access to all sound effects and stems of songs. The stems are the bits and pieces that you can dissect when you're listening to a track to make it even more emotionally poignant. Uh, paid advertising, corporate, business, wedding, life events, and annual commitment. So that's $19.99 a month for the commercial account. The creator account is only $9.99 a month. Um, and that gives you full access to all the music, unlimited downloads. And you can use this for your YouTube channels, uh, your social media content, your personal projects, your student projects, web and streaming. It's a great, especially if you have podcasts, okay? And the music that you're listening is from Jambox right now. So great option. If you're a student, they have $6 a month for a student that gives you access to music and sound effects. And uh, you could use those for your student projects, for film festivals, web streaming, social channels. It's really great. Uh, and if you don't want to sign up for a subscription plan, they do song uh, prices as well. So you could just do uh, single songs or uh, single items that you want for a specific project. I'm telling you, Jambox.io is changing it. Uh, if you guys haven't heard it yet, if it hasn't come out yet, maybe it has. I, I, all my episodes are all misorganized as far as the release is concerned. Um, I actually sat down with the owner uh, and we get in depth into why the Jambox stuff sounds the way it does. So definitely go back and check out that episode. And in the meantime, while you're listening, 
click the link in the description of the bio, head on over to jambox.io and look around, start to use their catalog to get those brain juices flowing for your next project. Uh, okay, also supporting the show, um, and they have been with us for quite some time now, ETC. If you are into cinematography, if you're into lighting, um, definitely head on over to etcconnect.com backslash love the process and check out the units they have. They do amazing spotlight units. They do amazing focused features, um, but they also are now doing these amazing uh, LED bicolor units. Uh, I actually have their uh, FOS4 Fresnel, which is like this big Fresnel. It almost looks like an 1800 HMI. Uh, it's all LED based. I can run it off any circuit in the house. Um, and these guys have spent so much time integrating red into their LED spectrum. And that introduction of red really changes the way skin tones look, really makes the colors richer and stronger. Um, I love these guys. Super cool company. Um, I do have ETC stuff in the kit. I'm going to try to convince them uh, to give me some of their Source 4s. I love the Source 4s. Those are those uh, spotlights that you see on stages, backlighting musicians. Uh, I've used those in uh, most of Gina's music videos that I've lit. We've always had some sort of Source 4 for now uh, running in the background. So, Or, I'm sorry, Source 4 profile uh, running in the background. So, head on over to etcconnect.com backslash love the process and check out what I'm rambling about, man. You guys are going to dig it. Last but not least, our friends over at Puget Systems. You've heard me talk about them since day one on the show. Love these guys. They build amazing computers. If you're in the uh, market now for a new computer, you want to spend some cash. You want to make sure you get a system that you can rely on. You want to make sure that all the money that you're spending on that computer is actually going into the hardware to run the software that you need it to run, right? You don't want to be spending at least $400 on the unboxing experience. The amount of money that it costs Apple to put together their felty fucking boxes. These are boxes that oftentimes I'm afraid to throw out because they look like they shouldn't be thrown out. And so they just sit in my closet and collecting dust, right? Get rid of that shit. Just send it in a box. Send it in a fucking box. I'm buying a computer, not a box. So take the money that it would cost for you to manufacture these elaborate unboxing experiences and maybe make my graphics card better maybe make my memory better in the machine so look into it head on over to pugetsystems.com there you can start to pick out your computer based upon the software you use and click on the software they'll give you a baseline package but here's what i love about puget it's a smaller company they know all their clients and they want to talk to you specifically about what you need they will put you in touch with one of their, uh, what do they call them? One of their technicians that'll walk you through, they'll ask you about your career, what it is you do, what it is that you need the machine to do, and they'll help you piece together the perfect computer. These guys don't manufacture hardware. They're not peddling off stuff that they're building. They actually construct computers from all sorts of third-party hardware out there. And so they benchmark test everything. All the graphics cards, they benchmark test all the memory, uh, they know what works best with certain motherboards. And believe it or not, the newest hardware on the marketplace doesn't necessarily make the software run as fast as it should. These guys know how to save money. They know where to put it. 
head on over to PugetSystems.com and check out what I'm talking about, man. Love those guys. All right, that's it. Um, before we get back into the show, head on over to InLoveWithTheProcess.com. There you can check out all of our sponsors. We have a sponsor page set up. But also while you're listening to the show, this is a great place for you to check out our supplement page for each episode. You can go there, watch trailers for the movies, scenes for the movies, links, images, photos. I try to ask all of the guests that come on the show to send me some original images. And some of those images I'll use for thumbnails and I'll post on Instagram. But a lot of that stuff I'll put together on InLoveWithTheProcess.com. Head on over there and check it out. That's it. Let's get back to the show. We're starting to touch upon what I think the soul of production design is, which is like you said, it's 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 telling the story of these characters, it's building a sense of mystery, it's providing uh, the clues so that the audience can t- start to piece together uh, the bits of the story that couldn't be written in the script. And there's mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than watching a film with tons of exposition, like where'd you come from, and this is what I did. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you, you know, um, one of the one of the things that I'm most proud of in Ford versus Ferrari is that there are no, um, there are no subtitles or like, uh, there are no titles in the movie. I don't know if you even realize that, but the movie, the story jumps all over the world. It's in Detroit. It's in Los Angeles. It's in Hmm. Florida. It's in Italy. It's in, and there's, there's, we do, we tell the audience where we are just from, um, just using visual, you know, visual cues. And that's something that was designed as part of our storytelling uh, technique huh. in prep in prep early on huh. is like, yeah, let's try to, let's try to do this without any, uh, any titles and see what, see how we do. <laughs> see, uh, that's what's so unfair about our business sometimes is that if we do our job so well, it's so invisible. I would never have noticed that. And I work mm-hmm. in this business. That's so great, man. Like that's such a cool little textured detail. Uh, Cause you're right. I mean, how, how I, I just watched, I forget what it was, but I was watching something on television and they just subtitled everything. And I'm like, I know mm-hmm. who this character is. I've seen him like for 15 minutes before this film. And I know that we're, we've seen this location a hundred times. Do you have to tell me that we're back in New York again? I get yeah, it. And, and, and there's a, there's sort of like this, uh, this unwritten rule that you're kind of supposed to do that in certain types of movies. You've got the, and you've got to have the typewriter sound. It's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> New York. And it goes like New York city. And then you see like the skyline of New York city. And it's like, well, okay, I get it. <laughs> but there are other ways. There are other ways without the typewriter font coming on. <laughs> well, but, but you know. for sure, man, for sure. Like, um, uh, I'll have to show it to you. I, years ago, I did a proof of concept which uh, took place in 1980s Russia. And uh, I wrote this story about this Russian drill team that dug the deepest hole known to man and they dredged up something evil. And uh, we did a very small, like 30 minute proof of concept, which now is being produced by Ridley Scott's company, which is cool. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, when we put this thing together, uh, it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me as I'm writing this thing that I needed to get period sound equipment. I had to get all this period stuff from Russia, nonetheless. 
Um, oh. and dude, dude, and my my production designer was so smart about it. He was like, we need to, we should think about this differently and we need to process how the hell these guys are going to get, how are we going to get this equipment, Mike? He's like, how are we going to do this? And we mm -hmm. talked about it a bunch and I said, but what if they couldn't get the gear that they needed for their work site because they were shut down by the Russian government. So they go onto the black market and they order a bunch of American equipment to the black market to get this thing. And that okay, it, yeah. instantly nice. solved their problem, instantly solved it. And then it actually changed the script a bit because then I had this guy who was normally just setting up the sound equipment to listen to the whole, actually going through it, a Russian to English dictionary, trying to figure out. Oh, that's great. It starts it to add uh, texture and uh, details into the, uh, yeah, into the scenes themselves. Your yeah. problem ends up being an asset. Yes, and that. it makes this, and the actor loved it. So it, it, it ends up transforming the scene it's one of those beautiful moments where like a problem flourishes into something that's really beautiful you know what the, the, I, I i gotta tell you like that that's really what turns me on uh is when you get that collaboration yeah. not only with directors uh and production designers but with directors with dps and with actors where the problems end up being the best things about the scenes you know where <laughs> yes. you become and, and i think that that's why a lot that's why a lot of directors like to work with the same people um, mm -hmm. over and over again because they understand. I mean, the greats really understand the power and the importance of collaboration. You know, that's why it's why Hitchcock would always work with a lot of the same production designers and DPs, and why you know, really Scott works with the same team and Steven Spielberg, because there's this sort of you get this sort of shorthand and trust where you're solving those kinds of problems uh, on a daily. Uh, on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was, a, I had the, I worked on a, on a, as an art director, I was a supervising art director on a, on a movie called Lions for Lambs that Robert Redford directed. Okay. And it, your story tell, uh, reminds me of, of, um, of a set that we designed into a location at the LA times building. And it was, it was uh, a scene that was, that was a dialogue scene with Meryl street. And we built like this glass box in inside a hallway at, uh, that looked out onto the, the the floor of the Los Angeles Times, mm -hmm. but I failed to think about air conditioning or like how to ventilate the space, <laughs> and we were shooting in the middle of summer, and um, it was very uncomfortable in the room. And Meryl Streep, being one of the being the greatest of all time, basically, sure. ended up using that in her acting and would hyphenate or pepper her dialogue with going over to the, there was a wall, like a, like a temperature control, uh, thermostat on the wall. Why is it so hot in here? Oh my God. Is that, and then you go into dialogue and I was like, isn't there any air conditioning on? And, and that's sort of, I just thought, man, that is just so cool. You know, that, that a pro like a mistake ended up adding another layer into the scene, you know, that's, and that, that's, that's an actor uh, problem solving, but also reacting to the the reality of what's being given yeah. to to the team, right? And we, I think, I think as a designer, I want to be Meryl Streep. You know, I want to. <laughs> yes. I also want to be open minded enough always to to take seemingly seeming you know things that appear to be you know, um, yeah, pro problems or limitations and turn them, well, how do you turn those around and make them actually kind of interesting details? 
Oh, man. And you're right, because I get excited. I know you get that warm feeling when you start to think about that collaboration. And I'm starting to feel it, too. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's that moment where, you know, I find that sometimes when I'm doing a project, there are bits in the script or bits in the idea that I subconsciously sort of pass over where I'm like mm -hmm. reading through it and I'm so excited about like a specific set piece. I'm like, this one's going to be great. This one's going to be great. And it's always like these connection scenes or all these, these little moments mm. in between that I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just don't think about them. And then with my prior experience at this point, I'm like, oh, those become, those become nightmares. <laughs> it's those little moments in between. Mm. And I'm often leaning heavily on my team um, to help me solve these issues because for some reason subconsciously I've been avoiding them and yeah and the surprises that come from that are so delicious sometimes mm -hmm. that that you at this point like you said you want to work with the same team I'm casting my crew around me mm -hmm. to to handle my insecurities that I already know that I have coming from the script you know what I mean mm -hmm. well you know a lot of times um and I, I would imagine that you know, you've been sitting with the script as a writer, you know, this as a writer, you've been sitting with these, these pages for a long time, for months. And so you have certain images in your head of how you imagine that it's going to be. Yeah. And yeah. it takes a lot of, um, I guess, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but it takes a certain personality or, uh, that's rooted in experience to be able to stay jazzy and stay loose, even, <laughs> Yeah. Even up through, uh, through prep. Um, I'll give you another example. Like, um, Jason, Jason Reitman on, uh, on Ghostbusters Afterlife was one of the co-writers, uh, with Gil Kennett, uh, mm -hmm. with Gil Keenan. And he, they had written this mountain into the story that source that is sort of like on view from all points around town. And, there's a sequence where Ecto-1 drives right across this, you know, through this desert, across this desert road, right up to the base of the mountain, like a, right up to the wall of the mountain. And we couldn't find any locations to make that work in Canada, basically. We couldn't, that, that it was a very clear image in the script that just didn't exist in real life. But, and, and so for, for weeks, we were trying to solve this problem. And then one day, Jason was looking through location photos and he called me into his room sort of excitedly and they they had found the location department had found this amazing bridge mm -hmm. uh outside drumheller that crossed a river with sort of like badlands in the background no mm -hmm. big mountain but this amazing very very visual beautiful remote bridge and there was um you know jason had that sort of instinct to be able to to think outside the box and be like, Oh wow, maybe this is the, like a visual, uh, real change sort of like moment where you cross this bridge and then you know, you're at the base of the mountain when you cross the bridge. Yeah. And, um, it, it worked beautifully. Like the bridge is, you know, when you see the bridge, you connect the bridge with being very, very close to the mountain without actually seeing the mountain. And then the mountain is something that gets matted in just above the horizon. Yeah. So, um, yeah, stay jazzy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fascinating. It, 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 it is so wild because when you start these projects, it, it's a very solitary sort of experience for, for a lot of filmmakers or writers mm -hmm. or producers because it, you, you're just 
you have a script or you have an idea, or you have some, maybe you have a mood board and you're just sort of living in this space. And I always, now with the years of experience, I always say like, look, all these ideas I came up with sitting at my desk and locked away in my place. And there isn't any life in this yet. And so the, mm -hmm. the move is to try to work with folks that have their own life experiences, have all their other work experiences and their passions and their loves for things to, to bring some of that into your idea. And, and the, whether you're talking about actors, you're talking about production design, set, set decorators. I've worked with set decorators that have changed the entire scene because they fell in love with props. And you're just like, oh my God, where the, where the hell did you find these things? And they're just the beaming look on their face where they're like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. I found this amazing, beautiful thing. And it becomes such a, a part, important part of the sequence. That's what filmmaking should be. That's what it is. Boy, yeah. You know, and I, I, you know, you have to, I think it's important to remember that, that we're all passionate artists, whether you're an actor or a, a set decorator or a production designer or a director of photography. And nobody wants to come onto a project knowing that everything's been figured out already or everything's been, you know, or that, well, I did the lookbook and I want it to look exactly like this, this, or, or, or here are the locations or even, and I think that the great directors, even if they have a pretty good instinct of, of what it's, what they think it should be, they, they, they keep it, they keep the, um, the environment loose with everybody loose enough. So it's a safe space for, mm -hmm. for ideas and for, for, for coming up with ide new ideas. Um, um, Jim Mangold is absolutely brilliant at this. He's so brilliant at this because we could be prepping a, a scene for months, months and months and months and, and have every shot storyboarded and, and have a, mo a model built and illustrations and, and what have you. But the, even the moment he opens the set with the, and the actors come in, first team comes in, um, it's like this, it's even then it's, it's this super relaxed jazzy environment of mm. like, Hey, let's, uh, let's, uh, Hey, let's try this out. Let's try, let's do a rehearsal. Let's clear the set, do a rehearsal and try this out. And, and it puts, uh, talent at ease and, mm. and it's like, it's like a bunch of friends getting together and making a movie, you know, even, even after months of talking about it and, and having that baseline sort of foundation of being prepared in with one way he's able to still be open-minded to, to making it better, even at, uh, on up to the minute before shooting, you know, it requires a lot of, uh, confidence and experience, I think, to get to that level, that yeah. sort of level of, 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 of just being really, uh, really great, you know? Yeah. It's fascinating because then if you look at it, <clears throat> the job of directing is so interesting because I think f surface value, if you're to describe to someone like, what does a director do? Well, he tells the actors what to do. He tells where the camera goes, all this kind of stuff. But there are so many different stages to direction, even before you get to that point, even before you get on set where you're, you know, trying to convince yourself and build a world for yourself on paper or through uh, inspirations that you believe in. And then you have mm -hmm. to then take that world and convince other people to believe in that world. And then you convince crew folks to work with you and you convince folks like you to get inspired to bring your, your stuff to it. So that it must have been incredibly comforting for him at that point, 
you know, if, if we're talking like Ford versus Ferrari, to be able to walk onto a set that is completely period, that you can go and look at almost any of these angles in there and just, and then just go, okay, let's live in this time for a second. Let's give everything away, get rid of your phones, nothing matters, and let's just fucking play. I mean, there's something to be said about the hard work that went into setting up that jazz stage to be able to play on that jazz stage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. Yeah. Well, uh, to your point, um, uh, you're, you're trying to, when you're prepping and designing these sets, you're trying to um, do it with the masters and with the choreography in mind so that you're, so that, you know, you've, you've thought about what the axis of the scene is and what the, uh, and what sort of the overs are going to be and how to, how to get as much depth and production value as possible out of the sets. Mm-hmm. But you're also creating a bit of a, uh, a sandbox for everyone to, 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 to play in and to make it even better than what you, you have designed it to be. You know, uh, I'm always trying to like add details in there just for the actors. So it feels real, um, yeah. uh, personal stuff, stuff in drawers, uh, um, you know, little, little details and things. Let, I mean, I did, a when I did the, uh, the farmhouse in Logan, mm-hmm. uh, I cooked, a. I, we, we built a kitchen and, and there was a, like a, a meal that they were going to, you know, but I wanted it to smell right. So I cooked, a. I cooked like a, a bolognese <laughs> in the kitchen and I made a total mess and, 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 you know, cooked, I had him power up the stove and I cooked garlic and I spilled like tomato sauce over the kitchen countertops. And cause I wanted it, you know, I wanted it to, I want that, I wanted that kitchen to kind of just smell right. Yeah. That's <laughs> even. super cool, man. Is I mean, sometimes you don't have time to, for that, but it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun when a set smells right. I, uh-huh. I don't know. I, I, you know, in the motel rooms in, um, in Logan, I would, uh, I don't smoke, but I smoked a, I smoked a cigarette cause I wanted to it smell. I wanted the bedding <laughs> to smell like it, like, like cigarettes, like a, like a really seedy motel room. Ah, dude, um, I love those, that. That is so cool, man. That is so cool. And it, we're incredibly lucky. Sorry to jump in here, but you're, we're incredibly lucky because there's so many people. I was just talking about this last week. There are so many people that spend hundreds of dollars and they stand in three hour lines to walk through Disneyland and to walk through these different sets. And it's never really appealed to me. And, and folks are like, why not? I go, because when I do a movie, it's my own little Disneyland. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating to walk into, ah, it must have been so much fun to walk into a set and go like, why does it smell like cigarettes in here? And then you go, all right, because it's a seedy hotel room. Perfect. You know, I love Well, that. you know, it, what, I, I loved it too. When I, I, uh, when I built this motel room uh, into an actual motel, but the room had been completely constructed. And, one, and the, uh, the actor came up to me and asked, is it, um, is it okay? I mean, is this being cleaned? Is this okay? And I'm like, no, 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 this is all <laughs> fake. <laughs> this isn't. I'm gonna. Can I sit on the floor? That's kind of disgusting. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is all paint and move. It's all totally clean. It's fine. But oh, um, super cool. You man. know, I, there's, there's. I, I really find a lot of joy in in the uh, the traditional process of opening the set. So like, there's this sort of formality where 
it's it's the art department set and then there's like a handoff and that that is tied in tradition in filmmaking mm. to i don't know god knows when so traditionally the production designer quote unquote opens the set and is there you know before everyone else and then the director shows up and then you open the set and you make and you're like there you go now it's yours <laughs> and it's sort of like you hand over the keys because mm-hmm. you don't own it's not your set anymore it's the shooting crew set and so cool. there's there's uh th- that it's just a really sort of special it's it's stressful and special at the same time i was gonna you're, say yeah you're, you're at the altar basically and you're, you're handing, you know, you're handing over a, a member of your family who you've been, <laughs> you've been sweating over and bleeding over for, for weeks, if not months. And, um, and you know, you want, you want you, the, in the best moments, you know, you, there's this incredible enthusiasm mm-hmm. and then the actors show up and it's like, wow, wow, this is so great. And there, the crew shows up. They, they, I, the crew crews like to say the best day on a shoot is the first day on a new location. Mm. And the worst day on a shoot is the second day on a location <laughs> because the first day is full of, you know, magic and oh, this is so great. And then by, and then after, you know, the second day it's like, oh, God, I can't wait to get to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like presenting a really well done meal at that point, all the energy yeah. and all the effort. And then you're just like, okay, come on in. Oh, that must be so much. It's like Christmas day for a lot of folks. You know? Oh, it's, it's the best. It's the best feeling in the world. I want to, um, on, on the, uh, the original, on the Wolverine movie that we shot in Sydney, um, mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to, to do, a. A, a billionaire's compound uh, on stage, all on stage, and it was like a U-shaped uh, um, Oriental contemporary space. Super cool, but it had like a, a garden and a koi pond, and we had fake fish in the water, and we had so cool. all these. Uh, you know, it, it rained. It would rain on cue with a button, and, and uh, oh, we had so shoji cool. screens, and and it was like a you know, it's it's one of these sets that that every, all designers love to do where it's a completely immersive space. You can look in any direction, 360 degrees, you open, go in anywhere, look around. And, uh, and it's like, it's, it's really, it's, it, it's connects to that like childhood make believe thing that got us all got is it's a thing that all got, that got us into movies, you know? Yeah. Make believe. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, building, building stuff in your backyard, you know, uh, forts and what have you. Right. That's what I did when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, my first movie, my first movie sets were forts (laughs) made out of cardboard. (laughs) Well, Um, what I I think a lot of people don't realize is that, okay. So you described the best part, right? You described like walking on the set, fake fish, you could make it rain with a button and all that stuff. You have been the director of that thing for how many weeks, how many months, like how many people did it take to actually make that, to conceive and to, and to construct that set. Like how many, mm-hmm. off the top of your head, how many folks do you think that was to do that set? Oh man, you know, I mean, just, I, listen, I, I, I'm only as good as the people who I work with in the art department. And, um, um, you know, on, on, on these movies, you've got, like I said before, you've got usually a team of illustrators, of yeah. concept illustrators, at least one, but usually two or three or four. Yeah. Um, you've got 
folks doing graphics, one or two people doing graphics. You've got set designers, uh, um, a handful of set designers who are doing the traditional drafting of, of the, like the architectural building documents. Yeah. Um, you've got art directors who are, who are the, who are figuring out like, you know, my job is the, is the what, and they're figuring out the how, like the how to, to actually pull it off yeah. within the budget and, and the schedule. Then you've got, then you've got the entire construction department, you know, which can be hundreds of people. And you've yeah. got the set deck department of buyers and dressers and shoppers. And, um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, these are, these are literal armies of, of artisans and artists. And, um, back in the olden days, that's why these, you know, the movie studios would, would be like little mini cities where all that stuff was, was done within the walls of the studio. You'd have, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why it was really so exciting back in the, back in the day to go to a movie studio was you, you had sort of like the, the energy, you could feel the energy of a city where you'd have a construction shop and a metal shop and a, mm. an upholstery shop, a paint shop, all these people working all together within the walls, anything you could do the entire movie without having to leave the studio. Right. So cool. And, um, yeah. And a, and a big, a big movie is kind of like, and even a mid-sized movie there, they feel like little, uh, they're their campaigns, their military campaigns with, with every craft yeah. all sort of, you know, uh, w- marching towards the same goal. It's very exciting. I, I always feel that way. I feel like when, you know, when I'm shooting and I've, t- I've had this analogy multiple times in the show, but you know, as a director, I feel like I'm turning to my generals, you know, where it's like the production designers on the left and the, the yeah. cinematographers on the right, you know, and we're, we're both sort of examining this thing and trying to figure out like what, how can we, how can we create 1980s Russia in a warehouse in the middle on the outskirts of Boston? Like what angles can we use? What tricks can we use? Like, how do we do this? And then speak like covering for each other too, which is also interesting because there are often times where uh, things just don't come together in the art department. It's like, how can we shoot Mm -hmm. this in such a way to cover up that and move on to the next thing. Or it's like, hey, the actor's really not being able to pull the sequence together. How can we also tell the story with what we have for props and where can we make that happen? It's it's so exciting. Jazzy is the way to describe it because it really does feel that way where you're in there and you're like, help me out here. <laughs> yeah. You, you know what I mean? And, and by the way, and I, you know, I'm, I kind of, I'm painting, we're both painting a picture of sort of like, uh, of, of, uh, romance and lily lily covered uh glens and skipping through the flowers arms locked together and it's by no means it's that you know that easy this is hard yes because you're also you know you're doing that jazzy collaboration but you're doing it under the ticking clock of the schedule you're doing it there's never enough money on no matter what movie you're working on you're doing it there's there's all a, a, a litany of, of challenges and things that aren't going right, you know. Uh, and you're so that that's the trick, really, is to maintain that open-minded, jazzy uh, facade under duress while you're being sort of, you know, while, while there's uh, automatic weapon fire going on over, <laughs> basically, <laughs> you know. It, it's yeah. a it's a weird dichotomy in that sense where it's there's the constant stress and pressure 
but at the same time, you're trying to be as artistic and creative and open-minded and flexible as possible, you know? Yeah. Uh, that that's it's a push and pull. It's a creative push and pull that's happening. Well, I, hard, I, to expl- hard to describe. Uh, dude, I, but you're doing a good job with it. I think at the at the end of the day, because I've worked on projects with folks that I love that I consider my family, and then I've worked on other projects where I've had crews put together for me, and I haven't had that sort of connection. And I think the thing that saves the creativity of any project is that safety that you find with your team. And it, like the world, I always say that the best time directing on set is when you call action, because when you call action, you have control of everything that's happening and the world just sort of plays out the way you want it to. And as soon as you call cut, then every fucking problem in the world comes flowing at you. Like they're, yeah. they're going to shut down the location. And uh, why are the, why is the grip team walking through this? And you're like, Oh, okay. 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 So, I love being able to turn to my keys and, and turn to my mm-hmm. collaborators and just sort of like walk away from all that loudness for a minute <laughs> and just get real yeah. quiet in the corner and go, okay, what do you think? And th- there's a beauty and safety in that little bubble. And I, yes, we are romantically painting this picture. And yes, I could have a much more cynical view of it. And we all know that you never have enough fucking money and that the stresses are always pounding on you. But th- this little, th- these little seconds of time are why I put myself through all this misery <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to make yeah, these yeah. things. Exactly. It's yeah. these little fractions of time where you're with your friends and your collaborators and you guys are figuring something out together. And then later on, when you go watch the film, the audience doesn't give two shits about how hard it was to make it. They don't care about what your budget was. <laughs> uh, right. They don't care about any of that stuff. On opening weekend, they don't give a shit about that, let alone 20 years from now. When that film is yeah. then watched again and immortalized. Um, and so I think it's so important to have that collaboration and that jazziness and all that, because that's what, what outlives all of the drama and outlives all the stress and outlives all that crap. You know what I mean? I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, it, I mean, as an art form, it's, it's very, it's a very, very unique art form because the process of making a movie is that whether it's a, a $10 million movie or a $200 million movie, mm-hmm. the actual mechanics of the filmmaking is very similar uh, because of those creative relationships and the collaboration, you know, yeah. like I like to, I like to, I like to sort of like, as I say, stay on the court between projects. So I'm doing, I do, you know, very, very fast uh, music videos and some commercials and things. Cause I like, I, I, I just like to work and there's a, a lot of similarity in the process between those projects that are where I'm on for a month and projects where I'm on for a year, you know, yeah. and that's what, I, and, and, and it has to do with sort of the approach and the, the craft and um, the filmmakers who I really like to work with, they, they, they look at what they do as, as craftsmen, as furniture makers is like, you know, yeah. uh, uh, a lot of my favorite directors are those who have been doing it for more than a generation who've, who have, who have studied it from family members or who, or who have worked their way up through other doing other jobs, even, you know, mm-hmm. um, Alfred Hitchcock was famously an art director. Uh, James Cameron was an art director. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Scott was an art director, you know, not, not, but there's other directors who used to be who are writers or who are, 
who used to be directors of photography. And that's, that's also uh, super interesting too, to get that opportunity to work with collaborators who have, who have had their toes into other, uh, other ponds as well, you know, because it makes, it makes them open to collaboration in a very unique way. Yeah, man. I think that's really important. Um, and we, I get a lot of questions on the show all the time about like, how do I get into it? How do I get into the business? How do I do these things? And I come from, you know, I was a cinematographer for years and I've come up that way. I've come up from the world of, of filming and, and composing shots and, and illustration and all that kind of stuff. So I, I always say to folks that are listening to the show, uh, PA, <laughs> like go, <laughs> go like play around in different departments and spend some time. 100%. 100 percent and and that's listen we're always learning we're always learning there's always more to learn and that's you're always trying to make yourself better by learning uh, about the other crafts or the about technique or about new software new digital tools you know that are constantly changing yeah uh the new version of photoshop right <laughs> there's always more to learn that's what makes it that's what gets me up in the morning for sure yeah no totally man it's totally great. And so if you were, if, if someone's listening to the show and they're, they're really falling for our, our romantic painting <laughs> of what the art world is and the art and production design world is, um, is there, what do you suggest they do? Do you think it's just like joining the art PA team and sort of poking around? Like, what do you think a good in is for somebody that's listening? Yeah. You know, there's not, there is no one tried and true way of, of sort of getting in. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there are a lot of different ways to do it. Um, depending on what your skill set is. Um, I think that your, your advice of just getting a job, man, like just getting your, just get in there and Mm -hmm. meeting people. I think that's a very good piece of advice. Uh, because when you're working, if, even if you're not doing exactly what you want to be doing for the rest of your life, you are, uh, you're learning. If you're working, you're learning, right? So that's, that's important. Um, but I think that it's in terms of the art department, what makes working in the art department really, um, unique, I think is that folks who are doing the hiring aren't really looking at where you went to school or what your degree Mm. was or, or, or what your pedigree was, what sort of, what they're not, they don't, I don't care what kind of fancy diploma you have. I really care about, uh, about talent. I want to hire the most talented people that are available out there. And so my advice would be to constantly be working on your portfolio and be working on samples of your work and putting those examples out there in the universe. You know, if you're an illustrator, I would, uh, I would advise illustrators to have a, a, a presence on art station, you know, for example, uh, yeah, yeah. which is, and I would, there's, you can work on movies and not be in Hollywood. You can be in, I've, I work with illustrators who are in the South of Spain and who are in Prague and who are in, in Western France and who are in China and all over, you know, yeah. because I ultimately want to be working with the most talented people I, I can. At yeah. the same time, uh, I think that there's really some, incredible like uh software programs out there uh like blender blender is a 3d program that i that that uh, we've been using a lot in design work that's just absolutely incredible and it's free <laughs> you know i mean a lot of the stuff is uh 
<laughs> if you have an iPhone and a decent computer and uh, you can, man, you can do just about, you can do an amazing, a lot of these, 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 these tutorial videos are available for free online on, on YouTube. Um, the barriers to entry are like really have really been dropping over the last several years. Yeah. So I think it's about networking. I think it's about building your portfolio. I think it's about learning technique, watching movies, uh, having, we're all filmmakers and we're all craftsmen, but we're all, you know, directors and production designers are always re referencing the great movies of the past. So yeah. watching old movies and being able to, to have a, a, a sort of, you know, a, an understanding of, of classical cinema, I think is also very important as well. Yeah. And composition and sort of like the, the basics of design and color and all that stuff. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it is, I, I'm just very, very excited about like the new talent that's coming up and, and that I'm seeing every, every day and every week. Um, it's mm -hmm. like, it's really phenomenal sort of what's out there and, and, and it's exciting how global everything is becoming at the same time. Yeah. I agree with you, man. That's, that's really good advice. And uh, I got to wrap it up at this point, but I could talk to you for another two hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks Mike. And you too. No, that was fun. It, yeah. Yeah. Next time, next time we'll, uh, yeah, we'll do it in an evening cocktail hour as you suggested. Oh, if you're, it, you it, know, it, it, just fun, fun to, uh, just fun to just riff with you. A hundred percent, dude. We should do it in person in cocktail hour. I think that would <laughs> be it. a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Well, Francois, thanks for being on the show, my friend. My pleasure. And uh, I hope to do it again. There it is. Today's episode in the can, and it's a great one. Uh, I really got along with Francois. I really dig him. And it would be an honor at some point in my career to work together with him as a production designer. I like his attitude. I like what, how he comes into the world of the film business. Um, I love his love of these details. Um, and I would give anything to be there as he revealed the set. I think it would be so much fun to see the excitement on his face as he revealed the set. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It's an uplifter. Uh, it was very romantic, but I'm unapologetic about it because I still, in my heart, no matter how hard this business is, no matter how hard it fucking runs us into the dirt, right? Yeah, I, like Monday I woke up and I was feeling like shit. I woke up and I'm like, I, don't, I gotta get started again. <sighs> what do I do? I just got to get up. I just got to get up. I got to start working. I got to start pulling things together. I really did. On Monday, I felt like shit. Um, and it was tough. I think it's because we're coming out of the holidays. And we're trying to get back into a rhythm. And then COVID is rampant again. And all that kind of shit. And I, I got myself up. I took a shower. And I did some research on one of, one of my creatures. And I dug into it a bit. And I was researching like honeybees. And I was researching like... How, like how bee wax is made. Weird shit, man. And so I fell down in this hole of it. 
and uh, actually came up with some really cool shit. I think I'm starting to stumble across something really interesting for one of the creatures in this movie that I'm doing. Um, and I wouldn't have done it if I didn't pull myself together. And then once you pull yourself together, you start to realize that the romance brings you in and then you start to really love what this business is about. Um, and I think one of the most difficult challenges, and we touched upon it a little bit, that there's, it's not always romantic and romance for this comes in very little small moments and little clusters and a big portion of what it is that we do is confront and deal with the enormity of a budget or time frame or time scheduling or a hundred fucking naysayers that are telling you that you can't do it. We're just consistently dealing with that stuff. And like I was trying to say during the show, and hopefully it comes across, just be smart about how you cast your collaborators. Cast the folks around you that are feeling inspired, that are, are, are they have different, they have different mood schedules than you do. So when they're down, you're up. Because it helps. It helps keeps that engine running, man. It helps keeps that fucking cold train fucking pushing its way through. All this shit. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you have these memories. Like, I've, I've talked about it on the show multiple times. I have memories on the Who's There uh, proof of concept set that just melt my heart. Walking into that giant house and seeing all the hard work that was brought into it. Uh, the work of Larry Sampson. Larry Sampson was my production designer on that. Uh, he killed that. But just working with the art directors, and Suja was on that, uh, the entire art team uh, was amazing. Same thing with 12 Camp, another amazing art team. Prop builders, prop buyers, uh, construction crews. Uh, I love this stuff. I love this business. Um, and I want to make sure that you guys feel some of that love. How do you feel after listening to this episode? Are you fucking amped? Are you excited? How many of you are going to get into the art world? How many of you are going to try to join the art department? Write to me on Instagram. Let me know. Let me know what you think of the show. I will post your comments. I will respond to your comments. And a big shout out. We just had uh, the big thing that happened on Instagram. Crossed 40,000 followers. Um... And one of the things that I'm most proud about with all of our followers on Instagram is that these are real fucking people. And I love to know and learn who you are. That's why I do those posts. Tell me about your life. What is your dream job? Are you doing your dream job? And if you notice, I read them all. I am never surprised. I, 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 like, there's never a lack of surprise when I read all the different folks and what they do that follow that account and listen to the show. Morticians right? Like all sorts of weird jobs and fascinating jobs. And it just surprises me. And I think the one thing that we all have in common is that we all love movies, whether we want to work in the business, whether we like to watch movies, everybody loves to fucking watch a movie, right? There's so many great f folks out there. There's so many great places to find inspiration and to find new partnerships and to find new team ups and collaborations. Just remember that that's the most important part of this business. And oftentimes it can feel lonely when you're putting it together. I feel lonely a lot because I'm just staring at this wall of storyboards or I'm staring at the script. And especially with COVID where we feel like we're locked down half the time and you're just waiting to get in the room with people. That magic starts to happen. And that's what I love about this show is it gives you just a glimmer of what that is. 
you know, me and Francois, I think we're going to get together and have some beers. And maybe we'll do this again in real life, which would be so much fun because I can really feel really good energy from him. Great guest on the show. Good energy from you guys. Uh, that's it. I'm not going to ramble up this episode. Uh, you know the deal. I will be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode of The Love of the Process. Thank you for listening. I'll leave you with a new banging track from one of our musicians uh, that has been donating to the show. I don't know who it is yet because I haven't put it in post, but I'm sure it's a great song that's playing in the background right now. All right, everybody. I'll see you.